0: Welcome to Cinescope Today, where our goal is to view and discuss current release films from a perspective that celebrates movies and their stories, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us, not necessarily free from criticism. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today, as always, for this show is my co-host, Seth O'Neill, and we are talking about The Commuter. Seth, how are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Good to hear. Um... We're glad to be back. We talked about Jumanji just a couple weeks ago. We've been wanting to get a new episode out there as soon as we could, but just various scheduling this and that and no promises of having a new episode by a certain date. Uh, we delayed and we're happy to be back today.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, our schedules sadly have not been very friendly to us uh, over the past few weeks, so it's good to finally at
0: least have a night where we can go experience a new movie and be able to talk about it. Yeah, and we'll get back to a a more, or we'll get to a more regular schedule eventually. I'm sure uh, that'll be super easy once we're living together in a few months. But for now, here and there, we'll have new episodes talking about current release films. So we're just going to go ahead and dive into it. Uh, there were several movies to come out this year that had outstanding critic reception. Uh, there was Paddington Two, there was The Post, and there was The Phantom Thread, among others. And we considered. All three of those as possibilities, but then we decided, you know, all those movies have everybody ranting and raving about it already anyway, so why do we need to talk about it?
1: Right, yeah. We, we kind of looked at the critic scores, looked at the reviews, and we figured that if, there, if there's all these movies are already getting good talk, there's no reason for us to publicize that even more uh, because we obviously want to be able to give people different opinions about even the movies that are not talked about.
0: Yeah, so we are talking about The Commuter. This week, which released on January 12th of 2018, was directed by, uh, I'm going to butcher this, so my apologies, uh, Jaume, call it Sarah, uh, who also directed House of Wax, Goal 2, Living the Dream, Orphan, Unknown, Nonstop, Run All Night, and most recently, The Shallows. It was written by Byron Willinger, Philip de Blasi, and Ryan Engel. And the music was by Roque Banos, who also composed a score for The Machinist, The Oxford Murders, Evil Dead, Old Boy, In the Heart of the Sea, Risen, and Don't Breathe. And the movie stars Liam Neeson, Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Jonathan Banks, Andy Nyman, Elizabeth McGovern, Sam Neill, Dean Charles Chapman, and Ella Rae Smith. So uh, like we like to start off with on this show, we're starting off spoiler free for a few minutes. Uh, Did you have any expectations for this movie, Seth?
1: Um, I, I did have expectations and the only reason I had expectations is because it's a Liam Neeson movie yeah. and <laughs> once you've seen it, one Liam Neeson movie, kind of a good taste of the other ones. Cause Liam Neeson is now kind of in this, I, I don't want to say, I guess I can say this, actor rut where he has a specific type of movie that he is kind of in. Uh, so I kind of expected a little bit of what the story might be like because it seemed very similar to taken in uh, nonstop. Uh, just kind of those action. He's stuck on it, stuck in a situation, needs to solve it, and needs to be the hero type movie.
0: Yeah. So would I mean, would you at least say those expectations are positive though? Do you like those kind of movies? I do. I mean, they're yeah. they're fun movies. No, yeah.
1: No, I've I, I'm I I was a huge fan of Taken. Huge. Uh, not I wouldn't say a huge fan of Nonstop. Uh, because Taken was like the original, like the OG OG Liam Neeson, uh, <laughs> action movie. Then kind of that it's it kind of did like a domino effect. And now these are kind of following the same path. I do enjoy these movies because it's just a fun kind of action movie that, uh, isn't like necessarily like amazing, but it's really enjoyable to watch
0: because it's just Liam Neeson doing his cool thing. Yeah. I mean, I had the same sort of expectations. I I expected a decent Liam Neeson action movie and on the whole, that's what I got. Um, he's likable. Like he always is. The suspense is high as it should be in this kind of movie. Uh, there were, we were talking a little bit in the car on the way back, one or two too many twists, I think, that were just unnecessary because this isn't the kind of movie that needs twists in order to be enjoyable. um And a couple of the action sequences to me were just, we're on a train. You can calm down a little bit. We don't need this high, big budget action sequence. Just, just play out the suspense and you're okay. But they did have those couple big budget action sequences with weird camera effects and stuff like that
1: yeah I mean we we expect all the action stuff with Liam Neeson so it, there's not really a need to go over the top but, I mean th- but this in this day and age people kind of want the over the top like they're really looking for how how they're going to change this action movie how they're gonna make it different than the others so I'm sure a lot of directors and a lot of uh cinema teams try to figure out what's the way that we can make our action scenes even bigger than the, the the last movie, so they can try to wow the audience and make make them remember that fight scene.
0: Mm-hmm. So, would you say on the whole, you recommend this movie to pe- to people to see it in theaters in particular?
1: Um, I would say not in theaters. I would say this is more of a like red box movie. Like mm-hmm. it's 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 a movie that it's it'd be enjoyable to see one time, but after you see it once, you I it's not one that I would come back to like purposefully.
0: I would say I don't not recommend seeing it in the theater. I, I think there's many other better options right now. We mentioned a few of them already. There's always Jumanji that you can go back and see that is still outstanding. I saw it a second time just this past weekend or two. Um, But if you've seen the other movies that are out there or if you've seen all that has interested you and this is just another one on the list and you have the funds and the interest, then yeah, go see it in theaters. I'm not going to say it's not worth seeing uh, but just don't maybe prioritize it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I definitely think that it's that. I mean, if if you enjoy the Liam Neeson pat, like the storyline Liam Neeson typically does, then you'll enjoy this movie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, again, not yeah, like you said, not a priority. Not really one that's gonna wow and amaze you. It's just a Liam Neeson story that's decent. And it'll be
0: entertaining. Okay. Well, let's move on to spoiler stuff. So if you haven't watched the movie yet, veer away because we are going to be talking about more specifics starting with the story. So what story elements or action sequences or anything like that did stu- stood out to you? So I'll kind of start at the beginning, uh, based off, of, uh, just that's a nice, place,
1: good, very good place to start. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but at the very beginning, I really enjoyed kind of the part of it where it's kind of saying he's just a normal dude. He has a normal routine every day, wakes up six o'clock, uh, wakes up his family, gets everything ready, goes to work, comes back home. And just, it's making Liam Neeson human. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of times, I mean, nowadays we see Liam Neeson as this action hero, God character. Like we know that he's going to do something amazing. So we kind of already have him kind of high on this pedestal. And I, I feel like they are trying to bring him down back to humanity saying like he has a family, he has a regular job. He's no one special in this movie. And I I was, I was talking to you about this in the car. Uh, I, I was hoping that they would keep him a normal person <laughs> with not a like bad, a career where he was a fighter and like, just going to beat up some bad guys. And I was hoping that that would be this, this, like this story was going to be different than all the other ones. But then they brought in that he was a cop, like for the first <laughs> right. part of his career. And that was, that kind of brought me down because so we know that he sold life insurance. That was what he was doing at that point in time in the movie. And then he, like, mentioned he was a cop, and I was just like, dang it, they had something good going, that he was going to be just a regular, no, like, career, like, fighting career background. Obviously, they brought that in and it made him more of a typical Liam Neeson character. So, But I did like that they they at least showed that he, he had his routine down to a T every single day, just a normal dude, and that's, that the being riding the train back and forth, that, that was part of his everyday life.
0: Yeah, I really like that. Opening sequence as well. It was a, a montage of sorts where we got um, this guy's life with his family, where he is waking up every morning at the same time to do the same things every day, day in, day out, for more than a decade at this point. Um, it's simple, but it was also really effective in giving us some sort of smaller background information, like the the financial strain that his marriage is going through, and. Uh, at the same time, their continued dedication to each other. There's the the waving the wedding ring at each other as they say goodbye. I like, hey, I still remember, I still love you. Uh, at the end of the day, we're still married to each other, and I enjoy that. So I, I like those smaller moments that are in that montage. Um, now the rest of it is the the action. I mean, and that that's just what this movie is. It's an action movie in a large. Part And the the action sequences I mentioned earlier, just to get more specific, the fight scene with the guy who had the guitar went on for like five minutes and it was just swinging things at each other in an empty train car. And it was like this weird camera effect where it wasn't quite slow motion, but it almost gave it the sense of slow motion or over stylization, almost like a comic book. Uh, during that sequence, it was just, it was strange. And it was like, okay, we need the, uh, here's the checklist of things that go in an action movie. We've got location, we've got tension, we've got bad guy, we've got good guy. Oh, Here's our action sequence. Let's put it in right here. And it just felt like they were trying to be, I don't think they were trying to be, but it ended up just being generic and out of place. Yeah,
1: I think it, it was just one of the moments where it was, I think it was a minute too long. They could They could, obviously the fight scene I think was, necessary is going to happen, but I think they overdid it and kind of made it longer than it should have. It was very cheesy. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I mean, it was, it it was, I don't know. I don't even know how, how to describe it in the the best way to and best words, but it wasn't a fight scene that I really enjoyed from beginning to end. It was kind of, I saw at the beginning. I I liked it. Then after a while, I was kind of bored with it because like you're saying, they're swinging things at each other. And also, my question was that throughout the the fight, there was gunfire, and no one from the other like <laughs> subcar subway car was like reacting to it. Like it didn't show them how like if they could hear it, which they should have. Obviously, it's a gunfire mm-hmm. gunshot happening, and so like that that was just that didn't make sense at all. So there's just some parts of the fight the fight where I was looking at it like this. Is, some of this part just doesn't make sense. And I just, I don't know. I was, I was over, I guess you could say I was overanalyzing at the same time. I was just like thinking about realistically how like this fight just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. The other action sequence that came to mind as being just too much was the whole train derailment sequence. And that one was almost like playing with the line of plausibility where they, they were right on that curve when they finally decoupled from the rest of the train and the whole point was if they go, if they hit that curve at 70 miles an hour, however fast they were going, they were going to flip and they were going to die. And they do it at the very last second, but they were still going the same speed. And so in reality, I would have thought that they would have rolled everywhere and they would have smashed up and they all would have been dead no matter what. Now, again... Liam Neeson action movie. I've got to frame my mind around the art form that we're watching. This is a Liam Neeson action movie. And we we have to turn our brains off just a little bit. But I was like, oh, come on, uh, we we could have gotten to this point without having this over the top, we just survived a train crash sequence. Yeah.
1: And also RIP to the conductor, like, like he, he, his yeah, death, his, poor death guy. his death happened so fast. And like, you just like, forget about it. Cause you all of a sudden, like you're focused on Liam the, the back car of the train and everything. Uh, and that dude, like he's, he's dead. Uh, but, uh, like you said, yeah, the physics behind it doesn't make sense. Cause again, like you said, their their point was they wanted to get detached before they got to the curve. That way they'd slow down, not hit the curve as fast. And it like that was another thought that while I was watching, that was another thing that I thought of because I was just like, that doesn't really make sense because the way that they phrased it didn't seem like it's supposed to be that close to the curve in order for them to be safe. And also the fact the whole like last car, like the whole derailment scene of the last car in house and how all of a sudden it gets off the tracks and all that stuff. You'd f- you'd think that they'd be really injured in the car still. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of the thing, wherever like they're they're train car was turned sideways getting hit by all these massive objects and being turned and twisted and all that stuff everyone like was able to get up and just walk around just fine like no one was hurt you're just like that's again another thing you're like realistically someone had to be majorly hurt in this incident no one just comes in from a 70 mile per hour train that crashes into several objects and just walks away just like man eh, that was nothing like I've, <laughs> I've been in a car accident while i was i got hit like we, we got hit 20 miles an hour and i was sore like Mm-hmm. Like, it was hard to get out of the car just without back pain. Like everyone out in that scene was like walking just fine.
0: Yeah. And even putting up a fight yeah. against Murphy there at the end. Right.
1: Which doesn't make sense at all. But and again, the, like the thing is, like it's a Liam Neeson movie. <laughs> they don't make these movies thinking, you know what? Phys- let's include some physics into this. Like, yeah. You know,
0: let's bring in this uh physics expert to make sure that we're being completely accurate. Right. There's, the, like, there's the no like, of an actual train crash. They just
1: kind of throw the science books out the window and they say, you know what? Even though they hit the curb, they were on the same speed. Liam Neeson's in that in that car in that cart, though. So he, just him being there, his presence saves everybody.
0: It's like the Michael Bay approach. Yeah. You know what would be cool if <laughs> giant that, robots,
1: yeah, and then uh, a giant robot came and saved Liam Neeson and his friends.
0: If only. Um, let's talk about characters a little bit more, which really means let's just talk about Michael Liam Neeson's character, the character. Um, he uh, has this immense pressure to provide for his family. Uh, like I said, from that opening sequence, we see that there's a little bit of financial strain they're trying to pay for their kid to go to college. Uh, he says at one point early on, when he gets fired from his insurance job, we're hand to mouth. Like I, I depend on this job because I'm five years away from retirement and this is, this is my livelihood. This is what puts the food on the table and I'm trying to send my kid to school. Can you be considerate of that? Um, And so he's a good guy in that he's trying to be the best husband, the best father that he can. And at the same time, he's also a guy who is tired of the same old, same old, has lots of reasons to go along with this mystery woman who calls him on the phone or who who introduces herself on the train and uh, offers him this magical $100,000 Right after the events of getting fired that morning, uh, so he really has a whole lot of motive to just go along with everything and to kill Prin and to walk away with the money for his family, but he doesn't.
1: Yeah, and uh, that, like you said, his family was is his number one concern, number one priority. Like that's what the whole movie f- focused on. That's why the beginning sequence was so crucial because you wanted to see what his. Uh, most important parts of his life, which obviously was his wife and his child. Uh, and when he was presented the opportunity, you know, the the way it was presented to him, obviously she said it was like hypothetical at first, and he was kind of just playing along with her game, and then he was thrown into the situation kind of without a decision. Really, she gave him. She basically said, "Hey, there's twenty five thousand dollars that you that's already there for you to take," and then. It's up to you. And so they kind of threw it in there, and he didn't really get a decision because if he said no, they killed—I they, mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you saw it, They killed somebody. Yeah, but he he, he had
0: the choice insofar of, uh, I get to choose whether this guy lives or dies by sticking with this or not.
1: Right. So it, just by having the guilt that his decision's ending someone else's, that, that kind of forced him to act even more and kind of pushed him past his boundary because he he is now kind of juggling two things in his hand that he didn't want to be responsible for he didn't want to be responsible for Pryn's life and he didn't want to be responsible for another innocent person being killed because of this evil organization that's causing all this havoc so it was a big crisis that he was thrown into that obviously he didn't want to be a part of because several times you see him trying to get his way out by trying to save his family make sure they're safe and then find a way to get everyone to get him off this train, get him out of the situation so that he can just go back to living his normal life and get over, uh, just the, the crisis of, uh, him being, uh, him being fired from his job. So it was, it was just a lot, a lot thrown at him. And he was obviously trying to be the bigger person, the bigger man and trying to create, uh, a safe, just a safe life for him and his family.
0: I, we were talking about this a little bit in the car as well. Did we ever find out why he wasn't a cop? Do you, I I would assume it was age because he, he said he was around 60 this time and he'd been in the insurance job for 10 years or so. And so 50, I would think if you're a field cop might be an okay age to sort of leave it behind because your, your body's aging and you're not as prepared for that. But we also didn't get any sense of whether there was a history of like tension between him and the police department or if there was some reason where uh he he was bitter at them because he was maybe let go prematurely because of his age or whatever reason so i, I was just curious uh what like why is it important that he was a former cop? Why would he even leave that
1: yeah and i i the what I do remember is whenever he was talking to um uh... Alex Murphy, his friend, his friend cop, I remember them, him saying that he, he did, he left, I want to say he left for his family. I want to say that that was a part of the conversation that they talked about. And whenever I think about him leaving for his family, I was thinking about maybe the hours were not very, uh, helpful that he wanted to spend more time with his kid and help him, uh, pursue college and pursue, pursue a good college. I think he said there, he was going to go to Syracuse. The thing is what, what the movie was focusing on. And also just being there for his wife, so I think I want to say he he, based off of what it was saying that he left it, because he wanted to spend time with family. It could have been another reason. We don't I don't think the movie spe- specifically said this is the reason why he stopped being a cop, uh, but they at least kind of left it open. Mm-hmm. But they did kind of drop some hints. But again, it's, I think it's really just not clear. It's just open interpretation. However, you want to see it.
0: Yeah, I think it would have been nice to have some sort of sense of his history with the police force, because that might have made his situation at the insurance place a little bit more meaningful. Like, he doesn't want to be at the insurance place. It's dull because he enjoyed his life as a cop and left it because of all these other reasons. Whatever they may have been, I think that would have enriched the story just a little bit more, enriched the character a little bit more. Um, and then that would have made his return to the police force as a detective at the end of the movie that much more meaningful as well. So that's just a small nitpick. I I would have liked to have known more about that past. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to his character and all the reasons he had to just go along with this and walk away with $100,000 to provide for his family after losing his job, he didn't. And it was at risk to his family. That he didn't do it, and I admired that about him because, as much as he loves his family, it wasn't the right thing to do to sacrifice other people in order to protect them. So, I I, I think that was an, the most important part of his character was that he is a good guy in a bad situation who doesn't let the bad situation corrupt his goodness. Yeah, and I think that
1: is it speaks true because the evil organization. Uh, like the one, the, the bad cop, Alex uh Murphy, like the one, the one thing that he said whenever he murdered the, um, uh, the guy that this whole movie is kind of re- the revolving around the kind of the murder that led to the, the suspect needing to, or the, the, the friend, uh, friend, the witness, mm-hmm. uh, needing to be protected. was because he was talking to Alex. Uh, he was talking to the victim, uh, and Alex Murphy's words, to him was, there's no nobleness, uh, mm-hmm. That like what was, what was this? wait wait
0: what do you say? It's like there's no. I I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something about nobility and yeah, it, how it like doesn't the, really exist. Yeah,
1: no, there's no such thing as nobility. It's there's only uh, I can't remember everything, but but he was like just the, the, just the focus that he's saying there's no you can't be noble anymore. That's not a thingy. But mm-hmm. uh Michael's character was that's what he was standing for in that whole movie like he was being a noble character doing the right thing and even though that there was so many ways that he could get out and do the wrong thing and make it easy for himself so he decided to be the bigger man decided to be the the noble person and do what's right even though it could potentially harm those he loves and that was kind of the two sides of the movie that I was fighting for there's the side that says just do what's do the easy thing get the money go live your life and then there's also the side that says okay what's the Correct way. I should, what's the correct decision? What's the noble, mature, good decision I need to make that will make me feel like I'm being the correct
0: human that I need to be? Mm-hmm. And we can use that to transition into talking about Murphy himself because uh, the very first, one of the very first lines we hear from him is at the bar, Michael is drinking away his problems. And Murphy talks about how being a police officer isn't about doing the right thing anymore. It's about politics so we get that hint early on that he has a little bit of corruption inside of him that he is uh he is not on the path of correctness as as we would hope from a police officer um i like patrick wilson uh he he's long been a uh, an actor i've admired um uh, and I really didn't admire or uh, I really didn't expect this twist uh, that that is that involved his character. I, I think you said you saw it coming a little bit, but I, I don't know if I just wasn't thinking about it. I don't know, but when it turned out that, oh, he was the guy who killed the person who now has the witness and that he he sort of instigated this, it's like, oh, okay. And then it was revealed, oh, you set up Michael to go on this and it it that's where the, the extra twist sort of came in for me. Like really? Um, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. The only reason I saw it
1: coming was whenever they said it was a cop, I figured that it had to be someone that we knew because mm-hmm. you're always looking for that kind of twist at the end of, okay, it was someone that we knew all along that was part of the big story. So I was just thinking about what cops do we know that would make this twist. And the the only cops we knew were Alex. and Then we also were, was in, were introduced to the, the chief mm-hmm. so i was that was kind of the twist i was either thinking it's the chief or it's alex so those kind of my two the two choices i had so i whenever alex like, volunteered to go up to the train i figured like i figured it could be it leaned towards alex a little bit more so I'd, i those
0: were the two i was kind of juggling i think i was aiming more towards the captain the the chief of the force because uh, i think that's who they wanted us to suspect right. honestly because even at the start of the film in the bar they set him up to be sort of the antagonist to murphy yeah. uh this, this character that they didn't necessarily get along very well and so i i do think that was the obvious scapegoat in retrospect at least um by the way that was sam neill from jurassic park uh oh. so it, it, nice little friendly face yeah uh but um it it was just strange that th- this whole twist itself was just convoluted like He just happened to bump into Michael this morning, knew he was going to get fired, or as Michael suggested, maybe even got him fired. I don't know. Uh, Maybe even a larger conspiracy than the film itself presented. Uh, It it was just again, this is a Liam Neeson action movie. I don't need this level of convolution to feel like I've been entertained. Just give me Liam Neeson beating up a bunch of bad guys and saving people from a train, and I'm okay. Uh, (laughs) But maybe that's just me. Yeah. Um, But then that also brought me to the idea that if they needed to find out who Prin was, why didn't they just stake out the Cold Spring uh, train station because they knew that's where she was being dropped off or whoever it was and see who went home with the FBI detail, you know, because those guys weren't hiding the fact that they were waiting there for somebody. Uh, again, I I don't want to overanalyze any of this, but I was just like, you could have just waited and it would have been really obvious who it was. And then boom, you're done. Yeah. And, uh,
1: reverse a little bit to kind of what you're saying a little bit before you got to this point, but I'll come back to it. Uh-huh. Uh, but whenever you're saying that you're kind of, you didn't really like how they, they're that Alex was, to, had told them where he was, what training he was doing. I actually, in a way I liked it because it kind of told you how, why they selected him in the first place and how this all came into being because they Alex was able to tell them what train, where he works and all that. And they kind of, the pieces kind of fell there. So I kind of like it. Cause at the beginning of the movie, I was like, why do they choose choose him in the first place? Like, mm-hmm. how do they know who to choose? So that, it makes it, to me, it made more sense in a way. And again, I also agreed that there were a lot of twists and turns. Cause you're, so you're trying to understand the whole big picture at this, like within the first, within the last like five minutes of the movie. So you're like trying to connect everything within the last five minutes. Cause that's where they throw it all at you. Uh, but, uh, going now going to where you're saying the, uh, uh, the, where, why did they wait? Why didn't they wait till the cold springs? Uh, I don't, I mean, that would have been smart. Obviously, it would have been a
0: shorter movie, though. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Liam
1: Neeson wouldn't be able to do all the stuff he just did unless they, if they did that. But also, I guess you can see that say say it in a way is it was a act of desperation mm-hmm. uh, because if, I th- I think they're afraid if, if she even got to the FBI, she'd be able to tell them all the information then, and then they'd be their whole operation would be blown. But I mean, who, I mean, obviously, it had to happen until Liam Neeson could save the day. Yeah. But I, I was. I guess you can look at it in a way of like, it was a way of desperation for them to try to clear their name without them, their hands being on it. So they could try to make sure that th- they couldn't
0: even be traced back to it. That's true. So uh, that, that that that's a good point. The fact that Michael is an ex-cop and was just fired and had all these factors weighing against him to give him the potential motivation to do something like this of his own free will uh, would have been pretty difficult to argue against in court had he not been successful. So that's a good point. Uh, now, the other characters to talk about, we can sort of just lump together uh, because it's the the other commuters. It's the other people on the train that he sees every day. Uh, we have Jonathan Banks as Walt, which is funny for us Breaking Bad fans. And by the way, we did see this on Jonathan Banks' birthday. So happy birthday to Jonathan Banks. Um, but I I, I like seeing him. I, I like him a lot in both Breaking Bad and in Better Call Saul as Mike. Uh, and it was nice to see him on the big screen. I don't know if I'd ever seen him on the big screen before. I mean, he was in older films like Airplane, but this was uh, the first time seeing him sort of prominent, even though he was dead after two and a half scenes. <laughs> it was just nice to see him. R.I.P. Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, it was it was a it was just a familiar face because in yeah. this movie, there's not really a lot of familiar faces you'd see. Like, there's maybe four. That I, that I myself recognized from previous movies or mm-hmm. TV shows uh but it's, it's just another familiar face he played his character wasn't wasn't anything major it was just someone that it was a friendly face on the train and that's someone that that uh Michael connected with so that whenever he saw Walt die that was kind of another just like okay what the heck like they just killed my one of my friend one of my just acquaintances friends I don't know how what level they were at really uh but he's when he, once he saw that he was just like holy crap this is real like he just died Mm -hmm. so that was just a, a person that they threw in there to kind of shock Michael into doing what he needed to do.
0: Yeah, I like that they established from the beginning that he had these special relationships with other people on the train, because there are lots of people who commute together in this way every single day. And it would make sense that when you ride a train with people multiple hours every single day for many, many years, you're going to get to know them. You're going to build relationships with them. You're going to be friends with them. And so the fact that he was friends with people like Walt and Tony and whoever else was on the train, the... Conductor. I, I don't think he was actually the conductor, but it's the same actor who was the commissioner, I believe, in The Dark Knight. Pretty sure. He's, I think I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he reminded me of him at least. Uh, but I like that we had these established relationships because it did made make Walt's death in front of the bus more uh, more uh, impactful because we knew that they were friends, and then it made everybody's sense of betrayal at. Michael thinking that he was all of a sudden turning against them, holding them hostage. It made that a little bit more impactful as well, because they felt betrayed because it was a familiar face who was suddenly uh, using that familiarity against them. And then at the end, when they all pull the (laughs) I am Spartacus scene and uh, as as corny as that is, as cheesy as that is, it, it was a nice moment because it was an extension of what we talked about with Michael, where good people can just be good people. And even when they're put in a crappy situation, even when it might be more beneficial to you in that moment to step aside and let somebody else do the right thing, uh, it reveals more about who you are as a person to stand up and do the right thing yourself. And so I, I liked that scene for that meaning.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and it, 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 was, it was a bigger picture than just Liam Neeson at the very end, which was a nice thing to see. That it wasn't just Liam Neeson by himself, Seelon Hanley, saving the day. It was the people that were on the train that were just regular people. And there's also people that were just there on the first, like their first time on the train or their first time in a long time. Like mm-hmm. those people that uh, Michael didn't know at all. And just seeing them come together at the last scene, knowing that Michael was innocent and this cop was dirty. They were able to come and save an innocent girl from being killed because she was just at the wrong place, at the wrong time mm-hmm. and saw murder. Like it was just everyone being noble and standing up for what was right in that situation.
0: I do think there were a couple moments where they were a little bit quick to trust Michael because he, he didn't put up a good face for himself at a couple points where he was brandishing the gun, waving it in people's faces, threatening, not, not like actively threatening, but he was using it to get what he wanted. And then it, it seemed like they sort of just breezed over that and, oh, okay, we're cool. it's just Michael. It's Michael guys. Don't worry about it. Uh, small complaint, but it yeah. was just like, you moved on from that a little bit sooner than I would have.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of it, if I was in their situation, I would be confused and scared because mm-hmm. this guy's talking on the phone people and he sounds like he doesn't know what's going on slash he's waving gun in the air and he's he took a took a few shots already. So I'd, I'm not sure what I would do because obviously that's just a weird situation that the guy with the gun looks confused and worried. And mm-hmm. I'm confused and worried as well because he has a gun.
0: Yeah, you'd almost rather him be certain when, with what he's doing, right. even if it was for evil intent. Right. So, <laughs> I
1: mean, I think I think they're they're they were just as confused as Michael was about what the heck is going on. They just mm-hmm. know that I better kind of follow what he's doing right now because he has the weapon, and I'm just sitting here. I want to be alive.
0: And since we mentioned the Dark Knight, it's it reminds me of the the thought experiment that the Joker pulls on the two boats, where they each have the detonator for the other boat, uh, where. You, you would think that one or the other would pull the trigger, but nobody does. It, it was that same sort of, yeah, we could just let Prynne take the fall for this and let herself be killed. Or we could, I and Spartacus this situation and all of us live or all of us die. So uh just since we mentioned the dark night, I was like, oh yeah, that's sort of a little parallel there too. Yeah, for sure. And uh I do like,
1: uh, I do like in the sense of kind of going back to Alex Murphy's because now we're now we're going back now leading up to out the Alex Murphy re- re- uh, reveal of him being the bad guy. I like how it, sh- it showed how his character, because uh, whenever him and Michael were talking about this organization, Alex is like, you don't know who you're dealing with. I do like I've seen them and I know what they can do. So you can see that he was now stuck in the loop mm-hmm. of doing their bidding because he I'm sure that he was similar in a similar situation to Michael was. And he got looped in, and then he was stuck in this loop of doing their deeds, and they would, they would continually pay him off because, they he they he owes them because mm-hmm. they paid him that much, so he they he's now stuck in their little organization. So I've been feeling if Michael actually did it, he would have been stuck in that organization's loop because that organization knew how to get to him because they had all I have to do is threaten his family, and he'd be able to do whatever they they tell him to do. Right. So it was a nice little thing to just see that how Alex was really act. It seemed like he was acting more so in fear than him wanting to do that because he didn't seem like he was a bad person he was just stuck in a situation where he feared the person feared the organization more than he wanted to stand up for what was right
0: he even said i have a family too right so it, it does give that sense that he maybe went through a similar scenario where he was forced to do things but uh he played the politics of it rather than doing the right thing like michael did right now, uh, briefly talking about the music, uh, I, I liked the music. I was listening along uh, while while we were watching today, and there were a few standout moments. W- was there anything music wise that stood out to you? I mean, Any particular I, I, sequences at least. I mean, for this movie, there's since there's a lot of action sequences. The music is more prevalent
1: because it wants to give you a sense of thrill and a sense of just you you want to be pumped up with the action itself. So there was a lot of times where the music got me more involved into the scene because that's obviously the intent is they want the music to be matching the intensity of the scene. And this movie is obviously is intense basically throughout the whole movie. It's a Liam Neeson movie. It's going to be <laughs> intense no matter what. So the music was there to match the intensity of whether it's fighting or the intensity of, okay, now he's, he's scared. So we need have to have the music kind of back there kind of showing that he, how he's feeling. So the mu- music was obviously intense throughout the whole entire movie. It had just, just different levels of intensity, whether it was uh, it was more prevalent during the action scenes or and then less uh, less prevalent during the actual parts where he was trying to figure out what the heck's going on in the train.
0: Yeah, I thought the action music was fine. It was a little bit generic, which is what you would expect from a movie like this, and that's fine. Um, but still, a majority of the score I thought was pretty melody based, which is is refreshing for a movie like this. Uh, I really liked the opening music in particular during that montage sequence we were talking about. It's very piano heavy and uh, pretty and almost uh, sort of passage of time-esque in a good way. Uh, so so I like the music in that respect and no knocks against it for being generic. Sometimes that's what a movie calls for. And when you have a generic movie, you go for generic music and that's perfectly acceptable. So uh, I did like it. Rook Banyos is not a composer I was very familiar with or familiar with it all really i don't know if i would have been able to <laughs> ever mention that name from memory at all but uh pretty good job here yeah so,
1: whenever whenever you're doing music for music for a Liam Neeson movie you're kind of just like hey it's Liam Neeson i can just make whatever it's probably gonna still be fine it's Liam yeah Neeson. <laughs> yeah uh
0: probably a lot of temp tracks and stuff like that <laughs> now our relevant section i've mostly talked about mine but uh I- i'll recap after you yeah I mean obviously, for this one that this movie the the relevance
1: uh is within the importance of family, which and Michael embodies himself. he shows that how important family is to him and how that is his driving force. so obviously, family is just important no matter what because without them he he really has no point to go to work, he has no point to do what he does because he's there for his family and for to provide for them and be there as a, as a leader. Cause obviously he was the person in that family that was helping his kid go to school by being a great father. He was a good, good role model for his kid because he was doing the, the roles a father should be doing, helping his kid with homework, making sure he's doing what he needs to be doing, loving his wife the way he needs to love his wife. I mean, they, obviously the movie showed the beginning that how they all they have good days, they have bad days, but no matter what you, they still show the ring saying, Hey, I'm yours, you're mine. And then also just the the topic of no, nobleness and the importance of knowing what you should do even when it's harder than doing the easy thing. And that's just another thing that Michael had to fight with this entire movie of not just choosing the easy way out, but choosing the right
0: way out. Uh, you nailed it. Both, both of the, my points exactly. Doing the right thing when it's the right thing to do, no matter the strain on you, no matter the pressure or the the incentive to do the wrong thing, do the good thing. And that's what Michael does. And that's what the other passengers do at the end, standing up against Murphy. Uh, so that's admirable. And then, like you said, the fact that relationship strain doesn't mean that those challenges are insurmountable and that you should stop trying to pursue loving each other. Uh, we, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but they, they'd been through a lot. they had struggles with money. It was still tight, but they departed each morning by waving their wedding rings at each other, reminding each other of their commitment and their love for each other. And as you said, Michael throughout this whole movie is fighting just to keep his family alive. And that, that makes his decision to not kill Prin. When we've seen how much he cares about his family, we see that he cares even more about doing the right thing by essentially sacrificing his family to not kill Prin. So uh, that's a, a, that's a smaller twist that I did really appreciate. And so, yeah, that, that those are our big takeaways. Anything else? Any final thoughts about this movie before we wrap up? Uh, no,
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's again, like it's just a good Liam Neeson movie that you would expect from him. And as I mean, it has those good messages that Liam Neeson kind of does, because Liam Neeson in all those movies, he's a good father uh, fighting for someone who lo- he loves and wanting to get them back from. Unsurmountable odds. And it's just a good, it's a good Liam Neeson movie. It's nothing crazy, out of the ordinary. It's just something that you, it's just fun to watch.
0: Yeah. I'll sort of close up with something I mentioned to you earlier. Uh, last Liam Neeson movie I talked about on a podcast was Nonstop back in 2014 when I was still on Movie Bite. And I said in that episode, don't the bad guys in Liam Neeson movies watch Liam Neeson movies? <laughs> because if they did, then they might make a uh, second. Second, uh, they might reconsider for a moment what they're going to do and who they're going to pursue and maybe try and pick somebody aside from Liam Neeson to be the protagonist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If I was ever in a fight, I'd draft Liam Neeson to be my bodyguard.
0: (laughs) Well, well, with that, that is the end of the official second episode of Cinescope today. Thank you all for listening. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Go over to iTunes or the Apple Podcast app on your iOS device to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And if you have any feedback or ideas or movie suggestions regarding upcoming releases that releases that you want us to cover, let us know at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Seth, where can people find you online? The place you can find me is on Twitter at Seth02. That is Seth, the
1: letter O, then the number two. Uh, and that is the best way to get in contact with me.
0: And same for me on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. Just let me know you're a listener and that'll increase the likelihood of me accepting your request. And don't forget about my other show, An American Workplace, where we talk about The Office from NBC. We just finished uh, recapping episode or season three of the show. So Uh, We're getting ready to dive into season four and onward, which is exciting. It's hard to believe we've already, we're approaching the halfway point of the whole show. Uh, Insane. (laughs) But you can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And show notes and contact information for this show can be found at com, And that is all for this week. Thank you everyone for listening to Cinescope Today, episode two. I'm Chad Hopkins. And I'm Seth O'Neill. This was Cinescope Today, and we'll be back next time with episode three. Have fun and celebrate movies.